0: not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure that we're Prepared to study God's Word, Scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. Throughout the Old Testament, there are numerous examples of the importance of cleansing one's life from being experientially sanctified prior to coming into the Lord's presence, prior to uh, being able to serve Him in an effective manner. Same thing is true in the New Testament. That's why we have the promise of 1 John 1.9 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to apply 1 John 1.9. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord, we're indeed grateful that you have given us your word, that in your word you have given us a sufficient knowledge of who you are and who we are, of our so great salvation, uh, both at the cross and in terms of its ultimate realization in eternity future. Now, Father, as we study these important doctrines related to the teachings in uh, Revelation chapter 3, as we anticipate our Lord's coming, that we might be ready, we pray that this would challenge us in Orient us to the future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, and we have uh, come to the fifth, I mean sixth of the seven letters to seven churches, the Church of Philadelphia. And in the midst of this evaluation report to the Church at Philadelphia... Our Lord Jesus Christ gives them a particular promise, a promise that is not just oriented to them, but is a specific promise to them that comes from a general promise stated in other epistles that applies to each of us. Let's go back and pick up our context. In the beginning of this evaluation, the Lord says, "...to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true." He who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and sh- shuts and no one opens. A reference to the character of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only way to access to God. A key, a door gives access. He is the only one who has access and he has access because he is the messianic son of David. Verse 8. He describes their works. He knows them well, knows them inside and out. I know your works, your production. Then there was the uh, parenthetical uh, insertion. See, I have set before you an open door. That is an opportunity for evangelism and ministry. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it, for you have a little strength. This is where he begins to evaluate them, for you have a little strength, that is a little influence, a little power, because your numbers may be few, though your spiritual power is great. For you have a little strength, but you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Here is a promise of how God's, how the Lord Jesus Christ will vindicate them in time. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, that is, they were under persecution from uh, Jews around them because of their uh, trust in Christ as Messiah. And therefore they were not real Jews, for a real Jew is not only a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a true Jew is one who has also accepted Jesus as a Messiah. The Lord promises, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. And then we corrected the punctuation and the versification that the next phrase does not belong in verse 10, but belongs in verse 9. I, And to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. Verse 10, should stand alone. This is an additional statement, an additional uh, promise. I also... It is not will keep you from the hour of trial, the hour of testing, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, this verse is a, an extremely significant verse and promise related to God's uh, plan for the church and the church age. And we saw last time that this is based on this phrase, keep you from. I also will keep you from. From the hour of testing. The Greek here is a famous phrase tero is the verb, ek is the preposition, and it means to be kept from or to be preserved out of. It does not indicate that they someone is in the midst of the testing and protected from it, but that they never enter into it. This is a crucial verse it's been debated among uh, theologians related to the timing of the rapture the verse itself does not tell us anything about the rapture but it does tell us that believers will not be in this time period referred to as the hour of testing that is church age believers will not be in this hour of testing we see this from the prep preposition I put this chart up last time just to you know, refresh your memory on this the left side is how some people wish to interpret this preposition that uh, ek means out from within emphasizing that at the beginning it's inside of the circle or inside of whatever it's being taken out from and then removed but the primary meaning is the one described by the uh, drawing the graphic on the right that out from means apart from or outside of, but has no implication of ever being within. So that means that when we're promised to be kept out from the tribulation, that does not mean removal from the tribulation, but not ever being in that tribulation period known as the hour of testing in that verse. So the conclusion was the predominant meaning is a position outside its object, with no thought of prior existence within the object or of emergence from the object. This is a great promise, not only to the church at Philadelphia. Historically, they were told that they would be kept from that hour, but it didn't just apply to them. There are other passages which we will see in other epistles. Uh, for example, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, that we'd be kept from that period known as the wrath to come. And so this is just an instantiation of that promise, an additional promise. Not only would they be preserved in time, but they would be uh, kept from the hour of testing. Now you may say, well, gee, of course they were kept from the hour of testing. The Lord wasn't going to come for at least 2,000 years. We know that. So how does this apply to them? Well, they didn't know that. Because what we see in the... Let me skip a couple of these other illustrations. What we see in verse 10 is this phrase, the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Now, you don't catch it in the English translation of the, of the New King James there because that seems to indicate that the original would be a future indicative verb, which is not true. The verb there is the Greek verb mellow. It's a present active participle. And the root meaning of this verb is something that is about to happen, something that is contingent. It is uncertain, but it, is, it could happen at any moment. And so it should be translated, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, the hour of testing, which is about to come upon the whole world. There's no indication of when that will be. It's just at some indeterminate time in the future. It could have happened in the first century. it did not. It could have happened in the second century. it did not. It could have happened in the third century. it did not. There were many who thought it might happen in the twentieth century, but it did not and it could happen today or tomorrow, but we don 't know when and that brings us to a very important doctrine that uh, many believers do not understand some debate, but it is the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return and I think it's particularly significant to be studying this uh, at this particular time both the doctrine of the imminency as well as the doctrine of the rapture and then as we proceed through Revelation 4 we'll come to the doctrine of the, of the tribulation in uh, introduction to that whole great period of scripture from Revelation 4 to 19 which describes the tribulation period. Right now we see war in Israel again. And this is something that we have seen several times in the last 60 years since Israel became a nation in 1948. We had wars in uh, 1948. There was warfare in the 50s. There was the (coughs) uh, Seven Day War. There was the Yom Kippur War. There was the war with Lebanon in the 80s. There's been war after war after war all centered around Israel. And every time this happens, Christians who believe in the rapture, who believe in the pre-trib rapture, who believe in the coming of the Lord, who believe in the literal interpretation of Revelation, start to vibrate a little bit. And they start to think, well, is this it? Is this an indication that we are on the verge of entering into the tribulation period, that Jesus can come back tomorrow? Well, the reality is Jesus can always come back tomorrow. That's what the doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return is all about. Nothing needs to take place between today, whether today is August the 1st, 70 A.D., or today is August the 1st of uh, 1948, or today is uh, July, the whatever it is, the 16th in 2006. It doesn't... Matter what day today is, Jesus could come back because nothing prophetic has to occur in order for Jesus to return. Now, one of the things we'll get into is that the the, that statement I just made is really a finely nuanced statement. It's almost like a like legalese. You have to listen to what it says and what it doesn't say. What it is saying is nothing prophetic has to happen. In order for Jesus to come back at the rapture for the church, that doesn't mean that prophecy may not start being fulfilled before he does return at the rapture. Hmm? See, there are prophetic statements that are made in Scripture related to the coming of uh, what's going to happen in the tribulation period. And some things may start being fulfilled as a precursor, setting the stage, preparing for that uh, event. So we can look at them and say, ah, it looks like prophecy is being fulfilled. But it is related to what happens after the rapture. It doesn't have anything to do with the timing of the rapture. Okay? And I think that's what we see today. And we'll get into that as we talk about the rapture in coming weeks. But I think that one of the things that we see is that there is uh, uh, cl- it's clear from the Old Testament that there is a prophecy of two global returns of israel t- uh, of Jews to the land global returns. The return in five thirty six BC was a local return. It was primarily from Babylon. you didn 't have a mass return to the land from the four corners of the earth. We're seeing a mass return to the land since 1948 from the four corners of the earth it is a return in unbelief and that is predicted in the Old Testament that there would be two returns one in unbelief and one in belief so I think we can say yes we are seeing a fulfillment of prophecy but it doesn't have to happen this way before Jesus returns for the church it doesn't affect imminency one bit because the Lord is still going to return at any moment and it is not contingent upon any prophecy any prophetic event being fulfilled. So that's our introduction to the doctrine of eminency. This is a, a doctrine that has been held since the early days of the church. We'll come back to that in our conclusion. This is a quote on the screen from the first epistle of Clement, written approximately uh, A.D. 96. Clement was the pastor in Rome, a pastor in Rome, and he wrote two epistles, to. The church in Corinthians, they're not part of Scripture, but they do give us some indication about what was held, what was believed, what was taught in the early church. He, of course, was an older man. By the time he wrote this, he had known the Apostle John. He knew, uh, probably knew Paul and Peter uh, when he was younger had heard them teach. So he's a, he's a direct connection to the apostles uh, in uh, the first century. Clement writes, of a truth, soon and suddenly shall his will be accomplished, as the Scripture also bears witness, saying, Speedily will he come, and will not tarry. And the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple, even the Holy One for whom ye look." So the early church understood that Jesus could come back at any moment. It, it, they, they anticipated it within their lifetimes. They they did not think that it would be hundreds or thousands of years. They understood that Jesus could come at any at any moment. To give us a little background of understanding this, I want to put this uh, prophetic panorama chart up here so that you can orient to the basic events that we'll be talking about this week and in the coming weeks. We're currently in the church age. This is a distinct and identifiable administration of God's rule in history. There are distinct attributes that uh, govern the church age. It began on the day of Pentecost approximately A.D. 33, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles in Jerusalem. That began the church age. The church age ends with an event known as the rapture of the church. Rapture is a translation of the, or actually rapture in English, comes from the Latin word rapto or rapturo, which indicates something that is snatched or taken away. It's the Latin translation of the Greek word harpazo, which means to be suddenly taken. And that is where we get this word. Some people will say, "Ah, why do you believe in the rapture? That word's not used in the Bible. I usually reply and say, why do you believe in the Trinity? That word is not used in the Bible. Why do you believe in atonement? Because that word is not used in the New Testament. Yet these are Accurate words that accurately describe doctrines that are taught in the Scripture. At the rapture, all church-age believers, alive and dead, are taken to be with the Lord in the air. And sometime after this, there is a seven-year tribulation period, what is referred to in Revelation 3.10 as an hour of testing. And while that is going on, uh, believers are being evaluated in heaven. These evaluation reports, uh, not just those in Revelation, but I believe they are evaluation reports on all believers in all churches, and those will be part of that evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ. That period ends in the heavenlies with the marriage of the Lamb, and then Jesus returns to the earth at the second advent. Uh, in many passages, these two returns, the return in the clouds for the church and the return to the earth, with the church are viewed as uh, collapsed like a telescope as one event, just as in many Old Testament passages, the first coming and the second coming of Christ are collapsed into uh, one event. It is not till uh, time goes by that we realize there's a separation. The second advent is then followed by a thousand years' uh, rule of Christ on the earth. Now, the one point I always try to make, because a lot of people haven't uh, clearly understood it, and that is that the Church Age ends with the Rapture, but the Rapture doesn't begin the Tribulation. Daniel chapter nine gives us our specific uh, description of this seven-year period. It's known as Daniel's seventieth week, and it begins when the Prince, who is to, of the people who is to come, which is the Antichrist, when that Prince signs a contract, uh, a peace treaty, with the nation Israel. That begins the countdown of that seven-year period. There will be a gap of time between the rapture and the signing of that treaty. It could be a couple of days, a couple of weeks. It could even be a couple of years. We don't know. We do know that there are, and with other uh, dispensations, there are clearly transition periods. There was a 50-day gap between the end of the law when Christ died on the cross and the day of Pentecost. So there are these transition periods. Periods in history. Second Timothy 4, eight gives us a, our attitude. There's sometimes Christians get funny attitudes about prophecy. Well, why do we study about prophecy? I just want to know about how to deal with my spiritual life today. Well, here is the Apostle Paul's statement. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but to all of them, that love is appearing. that is our attitude. Each day we are to anticipate, look forward to be motivated by the fact that Jesus Christ could come today. He could come this afternoon, he could come tomorrow, he could come the next day. because he doesn't, sometimes we become complacent in our spiritual life and we think, well, it's not really going to matter, but any day he could come, are we ready? That is the application that underlies the whole doctrine of imminency is that we don't know when he will come. So we always need to be ready as if that day were today. Let's start with the definition of imminency. Imminency means the at any moment return of Jesus Christ. He could come at any time. It is imminent, the Oxford English Dictionary defines the word imminent as meaning something that is hanging overhead, something that is constantly ready to befall or overtake one, something that is close at hand in its incidence. It is near. It could happen at any moment. Nothing must take place prior to that event. That is, I think, the key idea in the doctrine of imminency is that nothing is necessary. Nothing must occur prior to the return of Christ for the church. There's no prerequisite prophetic fulfillment. There's nothing contingent. There's nothing that comes between today and his return. Nothing that has to come between today and his return. The second coming, on the other hand, when Jesus Christ comes to the earth with his bride, is not imminent because there are specific signs said to precede the second coming. Therefore, if certain signs must take place before the second coming of Christ to the earth, then what we would be looking for is those signs, not the return of Christ. And yet what we see again and again in the New Testament is, is this anticipation of that the next event in the prophetic timetable is the return of Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. And that is the sense of imminency. Nothing intervenes between today and his return. The church age then is the only dispensation in history the only dispensation in which there are historical trends and no prophetic fulfillment in relationship to the church and the church age itself. The church began with an event that was prophesied, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And in the upper room discourse, uh, the Lord uh, prophesied that and also that he would return for the church, John 14, 1 through 3. The church age terminates with that coming at the rapture. In between, there are cycles, there's trends, there are certain things that happen uh, again and again, certain uh, uh, basic themes that we see emphasized in these seven letters to the seven churches, but uh, there is no prophecy that is fulfilled in relationship to the church. Second point, all that by way of definition. Second point, the doctrine of imminency... Uh, Let me back up a minute. The doctrine of imminency is important to understand the pre-trib rapture of the church. Let me back up. Just a minute. Skip this slide. What imminency means is that it is certain it will occur. We know Jesus Christ will return. It is certain it will occur, but it is uncertain when it will occur. In other words, it is not contingent on any other event. Now, earlier I said there may be some prophetic things that happen in relationship to Israel, in relationship to setting up things for the tribulation that might occur before the rapture. But nothing in Scripture says they will or must occur before the rapture. That's the difference. And even if they do, it doesn't make the rapture any closer. It just lets us know that, you know, God is at work in history, which of course we know. It is, so the rapture is not contingent on any other event, and no prophesied event intervenes between the present time and the rapture. That's the guts of of the doctrine of imminency. Not just it could happen at any moment, but that there is no necessary prophetic fulfillment between today and the coming of the Lord at the rapture. Okay, the second point. The doctrine of imminency is important for understanding the pre-tribulational rapture rapture, uh, of Jesus Christ, the return for Christ at the rapture. The rapture, let's define it. The rapture is the resurrection of all dead church-age believers and the removal of all living believers from the earth at the end of the church age before the tribulation begins. During the church age, when a believer dies, his body goes into the grave, but his soul and spirit go immediately into the presence of the Lord. At the rapture, those who are dead in Christ, those who have died throughout the church age period, are reunited with their resurrection body. And I believe... You can't prove this, but I believe that the resurrection body that we receive is in some sense related to these same molecules that we have today. They're transformed. And I base that on the fact that when Jesus received his resurrection body, his mortal body prior to his death is, is changed and transformed. The tomb was empty. He didn't just get a new body. He had the same body transformed so that I believe that God knows where all those molecules and particles are. Some people get uh, concerned about uh, things. You, they'll ask you, well, what about, uh, what, what about cremation? Uh, how, how are we going to be, be raptured? Well, if somebody died 2,000 years ago, their body and bones and everything, their dust particles are pretty scattered. Those Martyrs, those Christian martyrs who were devoured by lions in the Colosseum. Well, let's just say their body is uh, somewhat uh, digested and has passed into dust down through the ages. You know, God knows where all these things are. His omniscience, he knows where every molecule is and he's been able to bring them back. Those who have had their body basically uh, uh, evaporated or... uh, are destroyed by uh, uh, bombs or explosions and warfare or other events, God is able to bring all those particles back together in order to uh, produce that that body. How it all works, I don't know. I mean, I have facetious little questions I like to ask, such as if I die and I give up the uh, part, various body parts for uh, uh, to ha- for transplants, cornea, liver, kidney, heart... What happens at the rapture if, uh, if the person who has those body parts is, is um, still alive? Does that heart get pulled out? Does that liver get pulled out? What happens? I don't know. Those are those fun little questions we like to uh, twist around in our heads. All I know is that the basic principle is that God is going to take your present body and transform it into that new body. And that reunification occurs at the instant of the rapture. Those who are alive at that time are caught up to be with the Lord in the air. That's in First Thessalonians chapter four, seventeen and 18. And that verb caught up is the Greek harpazo translated into Latin as uh, rapto. That's where we get the idea and the verbiage for rapture. That ends the church age and is before the tribulation period. So we have various uh, terms that are used to describe this in theology. There are uh, about four positions. Actually, there are some derivative positions, but I'll just review these so you know the vocabulary. Pre-trib rapture. That's the, that's the uh, language. Refers to a pre-tribulation rapture. That's why we call the group that, of scholars that meets up in Uh, Dallas, the 1st of December every year, the Pre-Trib Rapture Study Group. Their focus is on studying not just the Pre-Trib Rapture, but dispensational theology and eschatology. And much of Scripture is still unfulfilled eschatology. One out of every five verses in Scripture is unfulfilled eschatology. And it's a massive amount of Scripture to, uh, to understand and to put into place. The next view is the Partial rapture view, this is a uh, minority view, but some hold it. This is the view that spiritual Christians get raptured before the tribulation, but those who are uh, disobedient, those who are carnal believers, have to go through the rapture. Uh, there's also some views that have many partial raptures. So if you, get, if you go from being carnal to spiritual and you grow to maturity, you get uh, raptured in the middle of the tribulation. There's some odd views out there. The mid-trib rapture view is the view that the, the rapture doesn't occur until the midpoint of the tribulation. There's also a three-quarters rapture view called the pre-wrath rapture view, which was first developed about 15 years ago and has uh, earned a few adherents. The last view is the post-trib rapture view that all church-age believers Uh, will go through the tribulation that is all those who are alive at the time the tribulation begins will go through the tribulation period and not be raptured until jesus christ returns at the end of the tribulation so we believe and affirm the pre-trib rapture position at west houston bible church that is based on the idea of of um, i think i've got my numbering off here i skipped a whole point I certainly did. I went from two to four. See, I'm not good, at, good with numbers. Okay, so you just pay attention to that on your notes. Just This is po- actually point three, though the slide says point four. The purpose of the doctrine of imminency is to keep each believer in a constant state of expectancy, looking, waiting, watching, hoping for the return of Christ that we might be ready. That's the purpose. Imminency has implications for our understanding of the rapture. It has implications for our understanding of prophecy. But the purpose is to keep us ready, keep us on our toes, waiting, watching. We look for, we anticipate. We're excited about the fact that Jesus could come today so that we might not be ashamed at his coming. 1 John 2, uh, verse 28. Point number four, remember the slide numbers are off. Point number four, believers are to look forward to the blessed hope. This is a key passage from Titus uh, chapter 2, that we are to anticipate the coming of Christ. That is our blessed hope. We are to look for the Savior, Hebrews 9.28 and Titus 2.13. We are to watch for the Savior, First Thessalonians five six, and Luke twelve thirty seven, and we are to wait for the Savior, 1 Corinthians one seven, and First Thessalonians one ten. This is not about some sort of morbid obsessive. Uh, Uh, interest in future things so that we can figure out where we are in God's prophetic timetable what's going on in Israel does that mean Jesus is coming back tomorrow we should live every day as if the Lord were coming back today we should be constantly in a state of readiness point number five point number five no prophecy occurs between or is fulfilled between the baptism of the spirit and the rapture means that the rapture is imminent that nothing has to happen prior to the Lord coming it could occur at any time no one knows the time or the hour even the Lord Jesus Christ in reference to his humanity and his role as Messiah did not know when that would be he said no man knows the day or the hour when that will occur point number seven The resurrection of the church, this is one of the other terms that is used for the, for the uh, rapture of the church in Philippians chapter 3, the, the, literally it's the ex anastasis, the out resurrection of the church. Like our dying is completely out of our control. We don't know when it will be. You don't know when you will die. Your, your, the time of your death is in the hands of the Lord. It's been determined by the Lord, and we don't have anything to say about the time, the manner, the place of our of our death. So you have to always be ready because you may not even live t- tomorrow. The Lord may come back day after tomorrow, but you may die tomorrow. So your going into the presence of the Lord could also occur at any moment. Our death, you might say, is always imminent. We never know what may happen. So we have no control over the time and the manner of our death or the time and the manner of the rapture people can't make it happen dispensationalists have always understood that one of the things that that i have found to be somewhat uh... irritating from some people in the last uh... few years is that some people say well you know these evangelicals are and they're supportive israel they're 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 trying to manipulate events so that jesus will come back uh... soon sooner than later and this just misreads both both history as well as prophecy. Now there may be a few wacko evangelicals out there, and we know that there are a few people that get uh, a little twisted around the axle about some things. But who in the world could try to manipulate global history to bring about the uh, uh, the renewal of the nation Israel? Now the there were Zionists that is Gentile, there were Christian Zionists as early as the late uh, 1700s who were praying for and hoping for a return of Israel to the land because they understood that this was prophesied in Scripture and it was necessary for Israel to return to the land. And uh, But they didn't think that they could, uh, they could affect that, that they could cause that to happen, but they knew that they should support Israel in that cause because of their understanding of the scripture as evangelical believers, but even a prophecy scholar such as Clarence Larkin, who wrote a book some of you uh, uh, read over the years dispensational truth that 's that big book that has all the all the char- detailed charts in it that you 've read. And Clarence Larkin was a uh, dispensationalist and prophecy scholar of the early nineteen hundreds and at that time, that's of course, before the Balfour Declaration, before Israel had returned to the land. There had been a number of large groups of Jews that had returned to the land in the late 1800s. But even then, he taught, he realized Scripture taught the rapture could occur at any minute. But if it occurs today, he said, so much has to occur take place before the tribulation could begin there could be as much as a 50 or 70 year gap between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation because he understood that for the tribulation to begin there has to be a a, a nation Israel a government to sign a peace treaty with the Antichrist and in uh, 1917 1916 there was no government there was no nation Israel so he knew that that a lot of things had to take place before the tribulation could begin, but if the rapture occurred in 1916, then uh, it would have to be many years for all those events to take place to get things to where they're supposed to be at the beginning of the tribulation. So uh, we can't manipulate this. No, no true evangelical dispensationalist has ever... Uh, thought that We're, we couldn't affect it if we if we wanted to. Eighth point: the resurrection of the church uh, is totally beyond our control because the resurrection is the Lord's victory. First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It, the rapture of the church is a victory of the Lord Jesus Christ in taking us to be with Him and keeping the church, his bride, out of the uh, tribulation. Think about it. If the church, if we, the church, are the bride of Christ, and the event that is pictured in in Revelation 19 preceding the coming of the Christ is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding of the church with our with our groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, for him to take his church uh, through the tribulation period is a gross example of, of why, uh, spouse abuse, bride abuse. Uh, why would he take his bride through the tribulation? Ninth point, while the rapture is imminent, the second advent is not. Before the second advent occurs, there are many prophecies which must take place. For example, the rapture must take place, the tribulation and all of its events, the uh, rise of the Antichrist, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, the judgment seat of Christ. All of these things must precede the second coming. So we wouldn't be anticipating the second coming. We would be anticipating these other things. But again and again and again in the New Testament, the thing that we are to look for is not the, tribulation, not the Antichrist, not the judgments, but the return of Jesus for the church. Tenth point, the rapture could have occurred at the time of James, the time of Paul, because no prophecy had to be fulfilled before the resurrection occurs. We'll see that in their epistles, in their teaching, they anticipated the imminent return of christ paul thought jesus would have come in his lifetime until it became clear to him that that his days were almost over he was being poured out like a drink offering and he knew that uh near the end of his life that he probably would not see the return of jesus christ i know dr walbert who was president of dallas seminary for many years thought that the Lord would return in his lifetime, except just a few years ago, uh, Dr. Walford went to be with the Lord. I think he was 92 or 93 at the time. Eleventh point, distortion of the imminency of the rapture results in instability and foolish explanation or speculation about the time of the rapture. This is why James gives us a warning, an admonition in James chapter 5 verses 7 and 8 which we'll look at in just a minute people just this last week i talked to a pastor and as things were heating up in israel he said well you know maybe the lord's going to come back well i said the lord could have come back without all this you know let's be careful well, let's not get all excited just because God's starting to move the uh, pieces on the chessboard of international uh, politics. God's been doing that. He's been making major moves for uh, several hundred years, I think, in order to bring about the proper historical circumstances uh, that will uh, uh, be at the time of the uh, of the rapture. So just because we see action doesn't mean the end of the game is near. Let's look at some key passages. 2 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4 tells us that one of the trends that will take place during the last days of the church. Remember this term, last days, refers to two different groups. You have the last days of the church and the last days of Israel. The last days of Israel are events that take place in the tribulation period. Last days of the church deals with the entire church age period is referred to as the last days from Pentecost, to the rapture are the last days of the church, and there are these trends that go on. And Peter says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And this has occurred time after time throughout the church age, where these mockers say, verse 4, "...where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep..." All continues just as it was from the beginning. This is the other. you say Jesus is coming back well it 's been two thousand years. Why is he waiting? what 's he waiting for? For well, forget about it. Jesus isn 't coming back. that 's what these mockers say. John 14, one through three is our Lord 's statement to his disciples about his uh, departure. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. When? He doesn't say. Indication is it could be soon. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. This is also a great rapture passage because it indicates that when we go with him, we're going to go to those dwelling places in heaven and not to the earth. In a post-trib rapture view, you, you just the rapture occurs, you go up and come back down. I call it the yo-yo effect. And uh, you go up and down, and you're going to be with Christ on the earth. But this passage teaches we'll be with the Lord in the heavens. Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, "Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me." James five seven through nine builds on this doctrine of imminency, undergirds the exhortation here to be patient. Therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord, behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until he gets the early and late rains. You too, be patient strengthen your hearts for the Lord, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's near. We're to be patient. And in that time period, what are we to do? Strengthen our hearts. That's a term for becoming strong in our spiritual life, growing to spiritual maturity. And then in verse 9, James says, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold... See, the basis for the exhortation to practical Christian living is based on an understanding of the imminency of Christ's return because the judge is standing right at the door. He is, as he said in verse 8, at hand. He can come at any moment. First Thessalonians 1.10, we see that the focus is, in these next few verses, that the focus is on the next event, which is the appearance of His Son. We are to wait not for the Antichrist, not for the tribulation, not for the judgments. We are to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. That is, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Wrath to come is a technical term here for the tribulation period. 1 Corinthians 1.7, "...so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the appearance of the Antichrist." Right No. eagerly awaiting the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. Philippians three twenty twenty one states the same principle. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also uh, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has. He has even to subject all things to himself, then first thessalonians four fifteen for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep in First Thessalonians chapter four, Paul is comforting those who have loved ones who have already died. When Paul was in Thessalonica, he taught eschatology, he taught him basic doctrines on there a couple of weeks, he taught him all this basic doctrine, including prophecy, eschatology, the rapture, understood all this so that they expected Jesus to come so much, so close, that when some of their numbers began to die, they they were surprised. Wait a minute. We thought Jesus was coming back first. We didn't think any of us would die. And so he is writing this uh, in chapter 4 to comfort those whose loved ones have already uh, died and uh, to tell them that no... There will be those who die in Christ, and they'll be caught up to be with the Lord. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to go with them. Uh, What undergirds this passage is the idea that there is no intervening judgment of a raging tribulation. That would be no comfort indeed. The comfort is that the Lord is coming back for us. Titus 2.13, we are looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Greek grammatical construction here connects blessed hope and the appearance as the same thing. The blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Also a great passage teaching the deity of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 16.22, at the close of... 1 Corinthians, Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha, which is an Aramaic term for, Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Lord, come. Now, it is that appreciation here that Jesus' coming is near. Uh, Philippians 4, verse 5. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. Practical application. Be patient with your spouses, with your kids, with your co workers. Let your patient attitude be uh, known to all men. Why? The Lord is near. He can come at any moment. Many have noted, also noted regarding eminence, the parallel with ancient Jewish customs. In the wedding customs of the Jews at the time of Christ, what would happen is you would have the betrothal of the groom to the bride, and then the groom would leave to go build a house. And the bride would not know when he would finish and when he would come for her. And it could happen at any moment, but he's away building that house just as our Lord is away building uh, the dwelling places, our our mansions in heaven, and he can come at any moment for his bride. And that was the same thing that happened in the uh, marriage traditions of the Jews at that time. The groom would leave, and he would go to build a house to prepare for their future together as a couple. And then he could come back for her at any moment. So she had to be ready. That's a backdrop for understanding the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew chapter 25. Is they needed to be ready. And there were those that were ready and those that became complacent. And so we need to be ready for his coming at any time. This was the attitude... In the early church, the didache, that is a Greek word uh, from didaskalos, meaning to teach, or Didasco, the verb to teach. Uh, the didache is the teaching of the apostles. There's a very popular uh, book that was written, a uh, basic doctrine book that was written in the early church, somewhere between 80, 70, and 90. And in the didache, we read, be vigilant over your life. Let your lamps, that's a reference to that parable of the virgins in Matthew 25, let your lamps not be extinguished or your loins ungirded, but be prepared for you know not the hour in which our Lord may come. Uh, Just after that, in approximately uh, AD 105, Ignatius, one of the early church fathers who probably studied under the apostle John, Uh, was taken to Rome where he was martyred in uh, 8107. On his journey, he wrote epistles to various churches which are uh, still available to us. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, The last times are come upon us. Let us therefore be of a reverent spirit and fear the long suffering of God that attend not to our condemnation. For let us either stand in awe of the wrath to come or show regard for the grace which is at present displayed One of two things. Uh, Irenaeus in his book Against Heresy says, And therefore when in the end the church shall be suddenly caught up from this, it is said, There shall be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning, neither shall be. They understood that the coming of Christ was imminent and preceded the wrath to come. Even Calvin understood the imminency of the rapture. John Calvin wrote, Be prepared to expect him every day or rather every moment. He also wrote, as he has promised, that he will return to us. We ought to hold ourselves prepared at every moment to receive him. He also wrote, today we must be alert to grasp the imminent return of Christ. He understood that Christ can come at any moment. If Christ can come at any moment, then nothing must occur or has to occur prior to that. In his comments on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, uh, Paul means by this, to arouse the Thessalonians to wait for it, nay more, to hold all believers in suspense that they may not promise themselves some particular time that believers might be prepared at all times. The doctrine of the imminency of Christ's return has been a basic doctrine that has been held throughout church history. Even the Westminster Confession of Faith says, shake off all carnal security and be always watchful because they know not at what hour the Lord will come. The Westminster Confession was the ultimate statement of Puritan theology in the uh, 17th century. No one can expect Christ's coming to be delayed. We must be prepared each day no date can be set no prophecy needs to be fulfilled before the rapture can take place i ran across this hymn and i thought i would close by reading these words to you i am waiting for the dawning of the bright and blessed day when the darkness not darksome night of sorrow shall have vanished far away when forever with the savior far beyond this veil of tears i shall swell the song of worship through the everlasting years. I am looking at the brightness, see it shining from afar, of the clear and joyous beaming of the bright and morning star. Through the dark gray mists of morning do I see its glorious light, then away with every shadow of this sad and weary night. I am waiting for the coming of the Lord who died for me. Oh, his words have thrilled my spirit. I will come again for thee. I can almost hear his footfall on the threshold of the door. And my heart, my heart is longing to be his forevermore. We look forward to our Lord's return. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that we can be encouraged today and strengthened by this teaching of of the soon coming, the imminent coming of our Lord, that he could come at any moment, today, tomorrow, but it may not be for a while that we look forward to nothing else in prophecy but his coming. Father, we look forward to that as believers who are part of the Bride of Christ. We anticipate our Lord's return for us. And this motivates us to grow, mature, to make the knowledge of your word the highest priority in our life. But Father, we also pray for those who may be here this morning who are unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their destiny, uncertain that... Jesus will return for them. This is your opportunity to make that sure and certain. Your opportunity to trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need to reform your life. You don't need to uh, get involved in ritual or join a church or do anything else. All you need to do, the Scripture says, is to trust, to believe that Jesus died for you. That's all that is necessary. It's not your work. It's his work. It's not your attitude, it's his attitude. Christ bore the penalty of your sin on the cross. It is up to you to accept it. At that instant that you accept it, you are declared righteous. God gives you eternal life and you are born again. And you have an eternal life that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.